Today's reading is John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples, so he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest, I tell you. Open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, 
so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. The word of the Lord. Well, have you ever misread a person? Like, you know, misjudged maybe their character, and, and then once you received some information about and it completely your perspective of that person on its head. Uh, for example, I, I don't know if there are any Harry Potter fans in, in the room, but I think of Professor Severus Snape. And uh, spoiler alert for those who haven't read the books or watched the movies, uh, but Snape is throughout the books a completely unsympathetic character. I mean, he treats Harry, the protagonist, with contempt. He makes much of Harry's experience at Hogwarts miserable. Through the first six and a half books of the series, he's likely to be one of your least favorite characters. In fact, heading into the final book, he appears to be the most traitorous of villains. But then, towards the very end of the seventh and final book, Snape is killed. And, and as he dies, he passes along to Harry, the ability to see his memories in what's known as a pensive. And, and what Harry learns is that Snape actually deeply loved Harry's mother. And that Snape was bullied by Harry's father, which is part of why Snape had a hard time treating Harry well, because Harry reminded him of his father. But out of Snape's love for Harry's mom, he vowed to protect Harry to his dying breath, even willing to pretend to be on the side of evil of Voldemort in order that in the end good might prevail. And upon this revelation, we realize that Snape lived perhaps the most painfully sacrificial life of any character in the books. Our our, our understanding of his character is completely changed by the end of the series. And, And I lead in with that this morning because I have a hunch that for many of us today, our understanding of this Samaritan woman at the well might need a similar transformation, depending on how we've been told to understand this story in the past. But before we get to that, I want to give us a little background that I think will be helpful. Uh, And so let's start by looking at two of the themes that, that are fairly prominent in John's gospel. And the first being that of sight or, or seeing. Uh, we see that theme pop up right away in chapter 1 when John writes that no one has seen God, but that Jesus has made God known. John the Baptist's entire testimony to Jesus is built on what he has seen. John the Baptist summarizes his witness like this. He says, I myself have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. And then when Jesus first calls his disciples in John's gospel, his invitation is put in three short but powerful words. Jesus says, come and see. And that's even the the invitation that Philip extends to Nathaniel, come and see. And in John's second chapter, he, he mentions how people saw the signs that Jesus performed and then they believed because of what they saw. And in last week's text, in chapter three, Jesus tells Nicodemus, no one can see 
the kingdom of God without being born again or born from above. And, and on and on it goes. There's this strong correlation in John's gospel between one's ability to see and their subsequent faith in Jesus. And, and then there's this other theme in John's gospel of light and darkness, which is maybe even more prominent. And that also has a strong correlation to sight and to seeing, right? Because light helps us see clearly. Light reveals truth, whereas darkness hides, it conceals. Darkness makes it harder for us to see. And and there's this direct connection between sight and light and revelation, things being revealed. Because what is a revelation other than something being made visible to us that we couldn't previously see, something being brought out into the light, as we often say. So John talks explicitly about how God has been revealed in Jesus as a light shining in the darkness. And in just a moment, we'll see how those themes come to play in today's text. But with that as backdrop, I want to make sure that we today are seeing today's text clearly. Because I I think that for quite some time, our, our ability to see with clarity what's happening in this narrative has been diluted Um, by interpretations that I think can be damaging. I mean, maybe like me, you've been told that this woman was an adulteress, or or at the very least, you likely understood that the Samaritan woman was a woman with maybe some shady character, a a suspect history, which is offered up as the explanation for why she's had five husbands and that the man she now lives with is not her husband. And in fact, of, of the six commentaries I read this past week as I prepared for this sermon, two of them went in that direction, including my beloved N.T. Wright, which uh, is a reminder that, you know, no theologian or scholar or pastor is infallible, and that includes me, by the way, to be clear. Um, But I want to suggest this morning that those readings have maybe more to do with what we bring into the text of of how women have often been treated throughout human history as as people of suspicion, especially in, in patriarchal societies, than it does with the truth of what John's trying to show us here. And, and on that kind of reading of the text that I'm going to share with us this morning, more and more scholars agree. Because not only is none of that actually mentioned in the text, you know, there's nothing that says this woman has a shady or sinful character or that in some way this is a story of repentance on her part. None of that is in the text. But further, when we actually read those things into the text, I think we miss out on what John really wants us to see. And so I just want us to do our best this morning to to wipe the slate clean, to hear anew, maybe even for the first time, what really might be happening in this encounter with Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, It's worth noting, this is the single longest exchange of dialogue that Jesus has with another person in all four Gospels. And that alone, I think, is significant. If nothing else, it reveals that John sees this conversation as being really important. I think if this was just an exchange about a sinful or adulterous woman encountering grace and experiencing forgiveness at the well, we already have plenty of shorter stories along those lines to reinforce that point. And so if that's not the focus of what's going on here, then, then what is John trying to reveal? Why has John devoted so much time and space to this conversation? Well, let's look at a few factors that might lead us to where John wants us to go. First, John makes a point right off the bat to note that Jesus had to go through Samaria. 
Now, to be clear, Jesus didn't have to go through, through Samaria. In fact, most faithful Jews in Jesus' day would do everything they possibly could to avoid going through Samaria, even if doing so added extra days onto their travel. Because Samaria and, and the Samaritan people were contemptible to most Jews at that time. They were seen as almost worse than the godless Romans because they, they sort of had the truth. I mean, they claimed to worship the God of Israel. They traced back to a common ancestry, and they embraced the Pentateuch, the first five books of what we know as the Old Testament, written by Moses. But they didn't recognize the other prophetic books as sacred scripture in the ways that Israel did. And so they didn't faithfully observe many of the, the, the practices that the Jewish people held as bedrock, including, and probably most importantly, the identification of Jerusalem as the proper center of worship for God's people. And so when John starts this narrative by telling us that Jesus had to go through Samaria, it should be our first clue that that maybe what John is really setting the table for is less about a random chance encounter with a sinful woman at the well and more about Jesus intentionally doing ministry in Samaria, work that the people of God had either been avoiding altogether or at best going about in completely the wrong way. And so let's start there. Let's start by reading this text first and foremost as an intentional encounter on Jesus' part with a Samaritan. But with that said, let's talk about the fact that this is a Samaritan woman that Jesus engages in conversation. Will you give me a drink, Jesus says. And, and I think this is common knowledge by now, but in those days, men did not engage women in conversation like this, especially if the woman was not their spouse and especially not in public. It was taboo, almost scandalous, which is why when the disciples return, they're shocked to see Jesus talking with a woman. And yet, throughout John's gospel, and really this is a theme that I think is highlighted in all four of the gospels, but John works to show the prominent and important role that women play in Jesus' ministry, and also the dignity and worth that Jesus ascribes to women. For instance, in John's gospel, beyond this interaction, we see Jesus stand up for the woman caught in adultery who the religious leaders are about to stone. We see Jesus affirm Mary's anointing of his feet with perfume despite the protest of his disciples. And then we see that women, in a lot of ways, are the first evangelists in John's gospel. They are the first to see the empty tomb, to run and tell the disciples. And Mary is the first to actually encounter the resurrected Jesus. All of that works to reveal something both of the heart of God, that, that God works to demolish the boundaries that dehumanize, and, and instead that God affirms the inherent worth of everyone but it also reveals the work John is doing to emphasize the role women play in the work of the kingdom. In fact, often exhibiting a greater faithfulness than even the men. Now, to be clear, no, nobody is more caught off guard by Jesus engaging the Samaritan woman than the woman herself. She says, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? She's saying out loud what everyone in John's original audience would have been thinking. And, and again, note the emphasis she's placing on the distinction between Jews and Samaritans. But Jesus, as, as he's wont to do, uses this as an entry point into a conversation about things much deeper than just a request for a sip of water. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. 
Now, that, that phrase, living water, can have two meanings. The first, which is how the woman understood it, is quite literally more like spring water, fresh running water, water that's flowing, not stagnant water like in a cistern. The woman doesn't understand how Jesus could offer that kind of water to her. First, because he doesn't even have a bucket or a jug, but, but then also it implies that he knows of a different source of water beyond Jacob's well, this, this source of water that people had been drawing water from for centuries. And the other meaning for the phrase living water is, is life-giving water. Not just in a, in a physically life-giving sense, but in a far deeper, spiritual, holistic way. And it's clear that that's what Jesus is actually offering this woman. And it's what Jesus offers us as well. I mean, we can all recognize, I'm sure, times in our life where, where we sense that life is stagnant or where life leaves us feeling parched and, and thirsty for something more. We recognize that life is not what we hoped it would be. Maybe friendships have fallen off and loneliness has set in. Or your job leaves you frustrated, unfulfilled. Perhaps your family's a mess. Or you're entering year three of a global pandemic and you're ready to throw in the towel. And while Jesus' offer of living water doesn't mean that he'll wave a wand and make those things magically disappear, it does mean that he offers us that which can give us life and hope in the midst of the bleak midwinters of life. The living water Jesus offers is himself. And this offer means we can tap into something deeper to keep us going. And even more than that, tap into someone who offers meaningful and lasting hope. Jesus' offer of living water is as much for you and for me as it was for that Samaritan woman 2,000 years ago. Now, I want to turn our attention towards some connection points between this conversation and in the previous conversation that Jesus has in John's Gospel with Nicodemus. Uh, we saw a confusion in that interaction as well when Jesus tells Nicodemus that you have to be born again. Both the Samaritan woman and Nicodemus take Jesus far too literally, and initially they misunderstand what Jesus is really inviting them to experience. But whereas Nicodemus doesn't fully lean into that conversation, he doesn't take Jesus up in that moment on the offer to be born again. Instead, as far as we can tell, he kind of leaves confused. The woman here, though, takes Jesus up on this offer. Even if she doesn't fully get what, she, what Jesus is offering, she says, Sir, give me this water. And I think there's an important truth contained in the woman's response. Jesus doesn't ask us or expect us to fully grasp what he offers us when he calls us to follow him. He can work with us wherever we're at, but we do need to take him up on his offer. Faith, the size of a mustard seed, Jesus tells us elsewhere, is enough to move mountains. And so I just pray this would be encouragement to all of us that the journey of faith isn't about having all the answers or cultivating a perfect theology. All Jesus needs is for us to trust him enough to accept his offer. And he'll take it from there. And he does. I mean, picking up on where the text goes next, Jesus responds to the woman saying, go call your husband and come back. Leading to this revelation that Jesus knows this woman's history, that she's previously been married five times and that the man she now lives with is not her husband. And so let's talk about this woman's marriage situation. The truth is John isn't interested in giving us all of the details of what happened there. I mean, did, did some or all of her husbands die? 
Did they find something unsuitable in her and divorce her? I mean, after all, it didn't take much for a man to divorce his wife in those days if he wanted to, that it was virtually impossible and relatively unheard of for a woman to divorce her husband. I I think the likelihood is at least that some of the the husbands probably died. But, But no matter the cause, in those days, there were almost no safety nets for women without husbands, especially if they didn't have children. I mean, baked within the nature of that patriarchal culture was the dynamic that the benefit of the doubt and and really the benefit of the cultural systems always went in favor of the men. And so a woman's hope for her needs being met in life was almost completely dependent on her being married, which is why widows are highlighted throughout Scripture as among the most vulnerable populations, as those whose God has a special heart for And the fact that the man she's now living with is not her husband shouldn't automatically be assumed or or read as being scandalous or shameful either. I mean, there are multiple possible explanations for what, you know, is going on with her situation, with one quite likely explanation being what's called a leveret marriage. It's it's a common scenario where uh, when a childless woman, uh, her husband dies, she's taken in by her deceased husband's brother. But again, no matter the cause, we can safely say this is a pretty vulnerable woman who's likely experienced a lifetime of heartache. And again, getting back to what I, I said a moment ago, a big reason we shouldn't assume that this woman is, is sinful or has a shady character is, is not only because John avoids any mention of sin and repentance in how he tells this story, but, but Jesus doesn't make any comment about sin either. I mean, unlike other narratives where Jesus explicitly tells someone that their sins are forgiven. Or, or you know, like the, the woman caught in adultery where Jesus tells her to go and sin no more. There's literally no mention of sin in this text. And there's no mention of the woman's repentance. Nothing, nada, nothing in this text indicates that the focus of this interaction has to do with sin and forgiveness and repentance. If we see it as that, I think we're bringing something into the text that's not there. And so if we assume that that's not what John is wanting us to get from this text, where, again, is he moving us? To further the point, let's talk about when this interaction happens with Jesus. John says it happens about noon. Simple question, and I mean this at face value. What do we know about the noonday sun? I mean, it's, it's when the sun is near its peak in the sky, right? When it's shining the brightest, the brightest time of the day, the most light. Again, go back to those themes of light and darkness that we talked about earlier. And then remember that the account from the previous chapter with Nicodemus, when does that encounter happen? In the middle of the night, when it's darkest, when things are concealed. Nicodemus is trying to hide this encounter with Jesus from others. Yet here, this woman encounters Jesus in broad daylight. And so maybe, just maybe, John is intentionally drawing some contrast between the woman at the well and Nicodemus. I mean, when we put them side by side, the contrast and the differences are striking. Whereas Nicodemus was a religious leader in the Jewish community, this woman was a despised Samaritan. Nicodemus represented power. This woman, vulnerability. Nicodemus is dignified. I mean, we're given his name in the text. This woman's kept nameless, anonymous. Nicodemus, the ultimate insider. The Samaritan woman, the ultimate outsider. Nicodemus represented the kind of character that John's audience would have assumed would be among the first to understand Jesus and the message of his kingdom. 
Whereas this woman would have been assumed to be outside the scope of Jesus' mission and most likely to misunderstand what Jesus was all about. And so taken back to back then, perhaps John actually wants us to see this woman as the surprising and positive counterexample to Nicodemus. Whereas Nicodemus slinked under cover of night to encounter Jesus, here this woman, hiding nothing, engages Jesus in the open, in broad daylight. Perhaps John wants us to see that the greater faith is being displayed here by the Samaritan woman. Perhaps John's wanting his audience to see that Jesus' message is not just for the insiders, for the powerful, for those who have gotten it all right from a religious perspective, but rather that Jesus' message is for everyone. And in fact, it might actually best be heard and received as good news by the outsiders, by the marginalized, by, by those whose society doesn't even dignify enough to name, by those who often get it wrong. And hopefully that gives us hope, right? I mean, maybe there have been times where you felt on the outside, like something in your life or your past disqualifies you from being used by God. Or, or that if Jesus were here today, he'd avoid you or ignore you. But today's text serves as a concrete reminder that not only does Jesus intentionally take the path that draws him to the outsiders, those on the margins, those with painful pasts, but often, those who match that description are used most powerfully by Jesus, as we'll see in just a moment. And so to that end, right after Jesus reveals his knowledge of the woman's history, the woman replies by saying, I see that you are a prophet. She recognizes that Jesus possesses divine insight, and so she initiates a discussion about where proper worship should take place. Now, her question here has sometimes been mistakenly seen as an attempt by the woman to change the subject after Jesus reveals his awareness of her history, that she's embarrassed that he knows these things about her, and so it's her attempt to get Jesus off her back by stoking a debate that had been going on for centuries. But again, that view only fits if you're seeing this narrative as being focused on this woman having a sinful past and Jesus calling her out of it. However, John, and more importantly, Jesus, treats her question here as genuine. So again, back to the text, she says, I see that you are a prophet. Again, think of what we've talked about, about seeing in John's gospel. To see is usually connected to belief. So when the woman says, I see you're a prophet, she's not changing the subject. It's a statement of faith. And what makes her you know, what brings her to this point of confession? Well, I think it's because Jesus has first seen her. He's seen her plight of dependence, not immorality. He, he's affirmed her dignity. He's spoken to her without shame. And he's offered her something of incomparable worth. He has seen her. He treats her as someone who has value and significance. And so when Jesus speaks of her path, past, both knowingly but also compassionately, I think this Samaritan woman realizes that not only is she in the presence of a prophet, but she feels really, truly, genuinely seen. And because she feels that she can trust Jesus, she risks asking the central question that had divided Samaritans and Jews for centuries. She says, where is the proper place of worship? And this is a heartfelt question that gets at the very core of what separates her from Jesus. 
And Jesus surprises her with an answer that's both, mo- both more hopeful and more penetrating than she had expected. He says that worship is not about the location, but rather about the manner in which one worships in spirit and in truth. In 2,000 years removed from this context, maybe that doesn't seem noteworthy to hear Jesus say that it's more about the heart of one's worship. But to minimize the importance of temple worship in Jesus' day would have been outrageous. Outrageous, that is, until you realize who Jesus is, that he is God in the flesh, present among us, inaugurating his kingdom on earth and promising to give us his indwelling spirit. And once you understand that, it all clicks into place what Jesus is saying here. And so the woman reflects on what Jesus has just said, and and she declares, I know the Messiah is coming, and that when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus' response to the woman at this point is striking. He says, I, the one who's speaking to you, I am he. Or, Or really, the most literal translation of what Jesus says is, I am the one who's speaking to you. I am And so Jesus not only affirms this woman's messianic expectations, but he does it in a way that identifies himself with the God who first revealed his name to Moses as the great I am. The woman would have caught that. This is the first time that Jesus explicitly affirms his identity in John's gospel. And he chooses to do so to the Samaritan woman at the well. And as soon as Jesus reveals his identity to her, The woman leaves her water jar behind to go and tell her neighbors all about this man, about this Messiah. And even that seeming, you know, insignificant detail about her leaving her water jar behind, it bears echoes of the disciples earlier in John who left their fishing nets behind, setting their daily tasks aside to go out and tell others about this Jesus who they had encountered. And then do you remember what the woman says to the folks in her community? Just like the disciples The Samaritan woman says, come and see. Come and see. And hopefully it's obvious now what John is really trying to show us in today's text. That this Samaritan woman is an example of what it looks like to encounter Jesus in good faith. To recognize the life that can only be found in him. And then to do the only responsible thing when you've stumbled upon something, someone so life-giving. You go and tell others. This woman is the first evangelist John gives us from outside the fold of Israel. So do we have eyes to see what this story is really about? That John has not placed before us a morality tale, but rather is offering this woman as an inspiring model of faith. So bringing things full circle, the gospel of John calls us to learn from this encounter and from this woman, that as we encounter in our own lives the resurrected, living Jesus, that we too would believe in him, that we would testify to the ways he brings abundant life to us, and then invite others to come and see for themselves. This is exactly what the Samaritan woman does. God revealed himself to her in Jesus, and out of that abundant spring of water that she senses welling up within her, she immediately tells her neighbors, those in her life. And John records that because of her testimony, many believed. The Samaritan woman at the well is one of the most positive models 
of a faithful encounter with Jesus that we find in Scripture if we have eyes to see. And so, sisters and brothers, as we close this morning, I, I pray that we may have eyes to see that what John is inviting us to imagine, that anyone and everyone, even someone as unlikely as this nameless Samaritan woman or as unlikely as you and me, we are seen by Jesus. May we see that like her, we are loved and valued by Jesus. May we come to see that Jesus offers us the same invitation to drink of his living water, the only kind that satisfies. And then may we, like this Samaritan woman, bear faithful witness to the one alone who can satisfy. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please pray with me.